Greetings, this is Bible Time with Jane, and I am Jane, your host. We will be continuing our series in the book of Acts, and today we will take a look at Acts 17, verses 11 through 34. In our last teaching, we read how Paul and Silas were being secretly escorted out of Thessalonica during the night, and they embarked on a 45-mile journey to Berea. Although the reasons for their departure were troubling, yet it proved to be a time of refreshing and encouragement for the apostles for a while. Let's turn now to Acts chapter 17, verses 10 through 15. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea. But both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens and received a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him when all speed, with all speed. And then they departed. When Paul and Silas entered the synagogue in Berea the next Sabbath, they were greeted with what I would call the perfect response to the gospel message. The Bible says that the Bereans listened to the message with all readiness. In our day, we would say that they sat there with their Bibles opened, eager and expectant. As Paul and Silas spoke, they would search the scriptures to be sure that everything the apostles said lined up with what the Bible says. This was their pattern every day, every time Paul and Silas spoke. Nothing was accepted unless it was consistent with scripture. As a result of this careful listening, the Bible says that many of the Bereans believed in Jesus. This included Jews, Greeks, which are Gentiles, and once again, prominent men and women in the city. Their hearts were open and they were seeking truth. And as God promised in Jeremiah 29, 13, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. How comforting and encouraging it had to have been for these two faithful servants of God. The Bereans exhibited the right response to the gospel message. May I also say that our response to the Word of God should be the same whenever we go to church or a Bible study or listen to a Bible teaching, especially in this day in which false doctrine abounds. We must be sure to always compare what is being taught, drawing our final conclusion from the sure foundation of God's Word.
Well, after some time, and we don't know how long that was, the Jews who had opposed Paul's teaching in Thessalonica heard about what was happening in Berea, and so they made the journey there for the sole purpose of stirring up the crowds with their slander and innuendos. There must have been quite a division in the city. And those who opposed Paul became so aggressive that these new believers decided it was best to send Paul away in order to keep him safe and alive. However, both Silas and Timothy remained behind to encourage the brethren and continue to teach about the gospel of Jesus. As one commentator states, fortunately, the gospel message was so identified with Paul that it caused most of the Jewish anger to be directed at him, leaving his traveling companions more freedom to build up the churches. Let me pause and point out one thing here. You will notice that Paul was teaching them about Jesus. And he was using the Old Testament passages to prove their message. Again, the scriptures that the Bereans were studying to determine the truthfulness and accuracy of the message were the Old Testament scriptures. Dr. H. A. Ironside writes, Somebody has well said that prejudice closes the door of the mind to any truth not already known. We are told elsewhere in Scripture to prove all things. In fact, the words are found in that very letter to the Thessalonians to which reference has already been made. The only way to test any system of doctrine is by the Word of God itself. As it says in Isaiah 8, verse 20, To the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Warren Wearsby adds this, that all of us should imitate these Bereans by faithfully studying God's word daily, discussing it, and testing the message that we hear. Well, after Paul departed Berea, he traveled to Athens to wait for Timothy and Silas to join him. Let's read about his experiences there. Again, Acts chapter 17, beginning with verse 16. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw the city was given over to idols. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is which you speak? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. 
for all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from them. However, some men joined him, and believed. Among them Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. To help us understand what Paul saw and experienced in Athens, let me quote from Dr. John Stott. Everybody knew about Athens. Athens had been the foremost Greek city-state since the 5th century BC. Even after its incorporation into the Roman Empire, it retained a proud intellectual independence and also became a free city. It boasted of its rich philosophical tradition inherited from Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, of its literature and art, and of its notable achievements in the cause of human liberty. Even in Paul's day, it lived on its great past and was a comp comparatively small town by modern criteria, and it still had an unrivaled reputation as the empire's intellectual metropolis. Metropolis, excuse me. The Greek religion was a mere deification of human attributes and the powers of nature. It was a religion which ministered to art and amusement and was entirely destitute of moral power. The Greek myths spoke of gods and goddesses that, in their own rivalries and ambitions, 
acted more like humans than gods. And there were plenty of deities to choose from. One wit jested that in Athens it was easier to find a god than a man. Paul saw that the city was wholly given to idolatry and it broke his heart. So, as Paul spent some time walking through the city, observing and listening to the conversations of the people, what he observed was a city that was consumed with idols. They were everywhere, as well as temples to the gods filling the city. As I stated previously, the people of Athens were proud of their intellect and their history. Their days were filled with various acts of worship, which oftentimes were sexual in nature and in constant debates as they were constantly trying to prove their intellectual supremacy. Paul would go to the synagogue that was in the city on the Sabbath and try to reason with them from Scripture. He found, once again, there were both Jews and Gentiles in the congregation who gathered together to worship the only true and living God. Then, during the week, he went out into the marketplace to talk with anyone who would engage him in conversation. In time, this practice led to a great debate between the two factions of people in the city. These two factions were the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Life Application Bible Commentary helps us to understand what these two groups stood for. The Epicureans and Stoics were the dominant philosophers in Greek culture. The Epicureans, followers of Epicurus, who lived uh, 341 to 270 BC, believed that the chief purpose for living was pleasure and happiness. If God existed, he didn't interfere in human affairs. Epicureans are similar to modern-day materialists and hedonists. The Stoics were followers of Zeno, who lived at 320 to 263 BC, who taught on a porch or a patio called a Stoa, hence the name Stoics. The Stoics were pantheistic and felt that a great purpose was directing history. Humans' responsibility was to align themselves with that purpose through duty and self-discipline. Thus, quite logically, uh, this led to pride and self-sufficiency. I am the master of my fate. The Stoics are similar to modern-day New Age followers and pantheists. The Athenian philosophers were either polytheistic, which means they worshipped many gods, or pantheistic, which means that they believed all nature was God. So it would be natural for them to build an altar, superstitious that they might have overlooked a god. These two groups challenged Paul, as what he was teaching did not line up with anything that they had ever heard. Some dismissed his message, while others were intrigued with some new knowledge that they could add to their collection of religious traditions. So they took him to the Areopagus, which is better known as Mars Hill. It was formerly the place where the most venerable judicial court of ancient Greece met, but by Paul's day it had become 
uh, a type of court where the city's religion, morals, and members were rather guardians of the city's religion, morals, and education. It also overlooked the city, a city that was filled with temples, which housed numerous gods and idols from all over the world. As Paul stood there, he began to speak to them using that view as a catalyst for his message. Because Paul had spent time listening to and observing the people, his approach was very wise. First, he established common ground with his listeners. He observed that they were a very religious people. Now remember that religion does not save. It only seems to highlight our need for a savior. It is faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross that can save a soul. It has been said that religion is man's attempt to get to God. Jesus is God's attempt to get to man. And from this introduction, he then turns to the altar to the unknown God. Paul used this altar as an opportunity to tell them about the unknown God, the God of the Bible, the Savior who has a name, Jesus. But Paul began by taking them back to Genesis 1.1. Now, you will notice that he's not quoting scripture at this point. He is simply speaking the truths that are revealed in the Bible. These people wanted to see their God in everything. Paul explains that God, that it is God who created everything. God is greater than the creation. He is so great that he cannot be contained in the temples that, that they were gazing upon that were made by hands, human hands. And in fact, God doesn't need anything from man because God gives life and breath and all things. This was the exact opposite from what they believed. They spent their lives and their fortunes just trying to please their God so that they would have a good harvest or fertility or, or favor that never seemed to come their way. Paul continued his remarks by stating that all mankind came from one common source, which we know is Adam, who came from God's own hand. This again was contrary to what they believed. They had this sense of superiority and entitlement because of their great learning, which in their mind set them above every other people and race. To them, anyone who was not an Athenian was a barbarian. But Paul pointed out that not only did all people come from one common source, God, but that God is the one who has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, as it states in verse 26. God is in total control. And the stated purpose for all of this was the hope that men might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us, as is stated in verse 27. Then Paul quoted from one of their own poets by saying, For in him we live and move and have our being. Yes, it has always been God's desire that we would know him, love him, and worship him. He created us for his pleasure, even as the Bible says in Ephesians 1, verses 5 through 9, for he predestined us to be adopted by himself as sons through Jesus Christ, 
such being his gracious will and pleasure, to the praise of the splendor of his grace with which he has enriched us in the Beloved One. It is in him and through the shedding of his blood that we have our deliverance, the forgiveness of our offenses, so abundant was God's grace, the grace which he, the possessor of all wisdom and understanding, lavished upon us when he made known to us the secret of his will. And this is in harmony with God's merciful purpose. Paul continued to make the subtle contrast between what the Athenians believed about their gods and the truth about the true and living God who did not need gold or silver or stone or any form of artwork. He was sufficient unto himself. At this point, Paul shifts his remarks to make this point, which is that while God was willing to overlook the ignorance of the past, now that Jesus Christ has been revealed and now that they have been told about him, God requires that they repent, meaning that they need to turn away from their idols and religious systems and works and turn to the true and living God putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who alone is God, who lived among us, died on the cross for our sins, and was raised to life. Then Paul concludes his remarks with this strong declaration. Acts 17, verse 31. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. That day of judgment will come at the end of the age. For now, there is still time to repent and seek God's face. The confirmation that this day will come is revealed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And it was this statement that the members of the council could not accept. Warren Wearsby writes, To a Greek, the body was only a prison, and the sooner a person left his body, the happier he would be. Why raise a dead body and live in it again? And why would God bother with the personal judgment of each man? This kind of teaching was definitely incompatible with Greek philosophy. They believed in immortality, but not in resurrection. Yet Paul preached this message because that is what the Bible teaches, whether or not men agree with it. And from this sermon, there were many who rejected the message. But there were a few who believed it, and their names are forever recorded in the Lamb's Book of Life. We know the names of two. They are Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman by the name of Damaris. We know nothing more about these two individuals, but God knows all about them. And he has chosen to record their names in, in the Bible, which is the eternal word of God. There are also others who join them in believing in Jesus as the Son of God and Savior of the world. Well, let me conclude this message by reading a short observation from the Life Application Bible Commentary. 
Paul and Silas were accused of turning the world upside down. What a reputation the early Christians had. The power of the gospel revolutionized lives, broke down social barriers, threw open prison doors, caused people to care deeply for one another, and stirred them to worship God. Our world needs similarly to be turned upside down. At its core, the gospel is not about establishing new programs or encouraging good conduct. It is about dynamically transforming lives. Ask God for the courage and the wisdom to know how you can help spread his good news all over your world. Don't hesitate to tell others about Christ because you fear that some will not believe you. Don't expect a unanimously positive response to your witnessing. Even if only a few believe, it's worth the effort. Remember this. God is not looking for good success stories. He is looking for faithful servants who will obey his command. And what is his command? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Amen. From Athens, Paul would then travel on to Corinth, where Timothy and Silas will meet up with him. He will minister there for a year and a half before heading on to Ephesus and later to Antioch to conclude his second missionary journey. And then he will set out once again for a third journey and will eventually be arrested and taken off to Rome, where he will spend a few years in prison. But this was not the end of the, his ministry. For it was while he was in prison that he wrote many of his epistles to the churches, to Titus, Timothy, and Philemon. These writings have encouraged and instructed God's people for 2,000 years. Well, let me close with uh, just one more point that I'd like to make from our passage today. It comes from verse 32, which says, and when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. I want to stress the point that the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is vitally important in the gospel message. We've talked about this before and how throughout the book of Acts, whenever uh, the apostles tell the gospel story, it always includes the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the life, death, and resurrection. The resurrection is vitally important for us to understand because it's in that resurrection that um, uh, our salvation um, is, is secured. A book of Romans chapter 4 says that, that Jesus Christ was crucified for our sins and raised to life for our justification. And without the resurrection, 
we are just as hopeless as those who lived before the cross. The Apostle Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I'd like to just read a portion of that to you. Beginning with verse 12, Paul writes this, Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do, do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. And then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, and so on. You see, it is when Jesus rises from the dead that he breaks the power of, of, of sin and death. He, he, it's it's uh, the, that guarantee that that sacrifice that was paid on the cross sacrifice the the debt has been paid in full and now when we put our faith in Jesus Christ and in what he did on the cross that work on the cross you see then we also share in that resurrection Jesus the first fruits she he's the first to rise from the dead right and live eternally and there is coming a day when we too will enjoy that everlasting life that is promised in the scriptures. In Romans chapter 5, it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Excuse me, that's Romans six twenty three. That gift of eternal life, that hope, that promise, that, that reality where death is not the end of the story, but it's just the beginning for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is a glorious teaching you remember in John chapter 11 when he was talking to Mary and, and Martha at, when, at the time that um, Lazarus had died. And, and Jesus was speaking first to Martha and he was dialoguing with her about this and, and, and she, she said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. 
and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus asked Martha, do you believe this? And I ask you, do you believe this? Listen to Martha's response. She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Declaration of faith. Jesus, the resurrection and the life. In him is life. In him is our life. That is why when uh, Paul was speaking to the Athenians about the resurrection, so many people were responding to that. Whoever heard of somebody rising from the dead and living forever? And yet we know that Jesus appeared to more than 500 people during the 40 days after his resurrection so that they became eyewitnesses to his resurrection. And we know that even the Apostle Paul saw Jesus on the road to Damascus, the risen Lord, and it changed his life forever. The resurrection, the doctrine of the resurrection is vitally important when you share the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a message of power. It is a message of hope. It is a message of truth. And it is a message of uh, the assurance of salvation. In Romans chapter 10, Paul says this, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. A lot of people say that they believe in Jesus, that he was a good man, that he was a great teacher, a prophet of God, a holy man. But do they believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Vitally important. Without the resurrection, the salvation message is not complete. The salvation work is not complete. But with the resurrection, God is saying the sacrifice has been paid, the debt has been paid completely. And now, in Christ, there is forgiveness of sins. Now, in Christ, there is salvation. Now, in Christ, there is the gift of everlasting life. And so when you share, when you consider these things, remember, it's not just the resurrection of Christ. Or it's not just the crucifixion of Christ. It is the resurrection. And that he has risen on high, ascended to heaven. He sits at the right hand of God, interceding for us. And there is coming a day when he will return to judge those who have rejected him. On that day, you want to know him as Savior. You want to know him as Lord. So listen to the Apostle Paul, even as he is sharing with the Athenians about the resurrection of Jesus. And allow your heart to be moved, even as their heart was moved. And there were lives that were transformed, as we've discussed before, Dicinius and Damaris and many others.
Let your name be added to that list. Choose today whom you will serve. The Lord Jesus? Yes, serve him. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, O God, for the faithfulness of your servants from long ago who were willing to go to places who had never heard about you to share the eternal truth of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection, and lives were changed. And from generation to generation, that message has been shared even down to our day. And we have also received that message, and we give you thanks for it. Impress upon us, O God, the power of that message, the power of the message of the cross and the price that Jesus paid so that our sins might be forgiven. Impress upon us the power of the empty tomb, the resurrection of Jesus, and the glory that it is there, and the hope, and the promise, and the power. Heavenly Father, write your word upon the tablet of our hearts, but not just upon our hearts, but also upon our tongue, that we might be faithful to share with others these glorious truths, these eternal truths, these powerful truths that will never change. For your word is secure. It is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we choose to take our stand on your word and on your truth. Bless us, O Lord. Teach us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you are finding these messages helpful and encouraging, or if you have a question that you would like to ask, please feel free to email me at BibleTimeWithJane at gmail.com. That's all one word, BibleTimeWithJane at gmail.com. So until next time, my wonderful friend, may the power of this gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ fill you with that joy and strength and peace that is promised to you in God's holy word. May our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. God bless you, my friend. <laughs>